I want to introduce our speaker this morning. Uh, Tom Flanders is here, Reverend Tom Flanders. Uh, Tom and Chris Flanders have been a part of our church for years. Uh, they served as our district superintendent, uh, I want to say for at least 12, was it nine years or 12 years? 11 years. That's right. That's right. You left early. Uh, with one year, one year to go, you actually left us to go somewhere else. I forgot that. Yeah. Um, but before, well before the, he became district superintendent and they served together in that role, they've been, they've been good friends with, Di, with Diane and I and good friends of our church. They have been here many times to preach. You may recall about two years ago, uh, they were here to preach one last time as our district superintendent. And we are glad to have them back. They actually came back to be here for Night to Shine. And I immediately said, Tom, if you're coming, would you be willing to preach? He said, yes. So I am glad to have him. But I have to tell you this story before, just as my introduction to him. So I work with Tom in, in projects and district for, you know, for all these years we've been together. One particular church he was working with, he had preached there at least a dozen times, maybe more. Uh, and, and in a condensed period of time, about two years, he'd preached there numbers, a number of times, been walking through some issues with him and coaching and talking, all of that. And it came to another meeting and he asked me to go with him. So I went with him to the meeting. And uh, don't forget, he'd been preaching, he's been telling, answering questions over and over again. And in this meeting, they ask another que- same question that they've been asking along. And Tom just says, ask me, Scott, maybe you can answer. So I got up and I gave an answer. It's a pretty short answer because you know me, I'm not one for going long. And so I gave a <laughs> very concise answer. And when I get done with the answer, stand back and a guy says, can I say something? Guy stands up in the room. No, don't you get the picture here? I'm standing right here. Tom's sitting in the front row right, looking right at me. Guy stands up and he says, first of all, all these years, it's the first time someone has answered it in such a way that I can get it, that we understand it. It's finally clear. Someone finally knows what they're talking about and speaks. And then says this, looks at me and says, you know, Pastor Scott, you are a world-class communicator. (laughs) What am I going to say? No. And uh, as they're saying this, I'm looking at Tom, who's just got his head down, shaking his head. We got all done. I said, Tom, did you happen? Yeah, I heard it. I heard it. I said, listen, I said the exact same things he has said for two years. Differences, world-class communicator. (laughs) So listen, before Tom comes, I just want to say this. He may not be a world-class communicator, but he's very, very good. You'll like him. (laughs) How's that for an introduction, huh? Pretty good. The worst part is that's a true story. (laughs) Yeah, it is. I'm still trying to forgive that guy. Um, But no, well, it's a privilege for uh, Chris and I to be here. We did come because of Night to Shine. Many of you know that we are parents to a son with special needs, and he'll turn 27 next month. He was here for Night to Shine five years ago. He has talked about that ever since. And when we told him we were going back to Vermont to go to Night to Shine, I hadn't seen him in almost three weeks, and I went to visit him at his residence where he lives, and I was talking to him about going to Night to Shine, and he gets this big grin on his face, and he just began laughing and giggling uncontrollably, uh, and I couldn't stop him. And finally, the staff said, what's he so happy about? I said, about Night to Shine. And uh, so I just want to say to all of you who helped pull off an incredible night, thank you. You have no idea what it means to families who have children with special needs until they see their kids being celebrated the way that night celebrates them, how much it means to moms and dads and as well to the individuals who are there to dance and have a great party. So thanks, Essex Alliance Church. Uh, Last uh, Friday night, I leaned over to Chris and I said, this is the church at its best. 
And so thanks for everything that you did. Would you pray with me? And then we're going to look into John's gospel. Father, thank you for the privilege of being able to look once again into the Bible and how its words and uh, the things that have been recorded there, the stories, the stories of Jesus, guide and inspire our hearts and deepen our faith and direct us in ways that are right and good for the time we live here in anticipation of the time we will live with you for eternity. Uh, please, Father, be merciful and gracious again to use this to such ends. We pray in your name. Amen. You know, it's the Gospel of John that tells us the very first miracle that Jesus does, the very first known miracle, is um, at a wedding. And I remember the first time that I read the account of Jesus doing a miracle at a wedding, it occurred to me, it seems like a wedding's a good place to do something remarkable. Um, it's, it's a captive audience, and it is for the most part a pretty friendly crowd. We stayed overnight last night at the Essex, and um, we were leaving because we were staying in uh, one of the buildings on the side. We were, we were trying to exit and go out for the afternoon to do a little shopping, and as we opened the door and uh, were about to leave, there was this steady stream of people, just this large stream of guests and the wedding party that were coming through the door, and we couldn't get out. They were between the ceremony and the breakdown that was happening from that and then what was being set up for the reception over in the atrium, which is sort of a, a glass room, if you will. And so they were being shuttled over to the building where we were staying to a little parlor there for some hors d'oeuvres and drinks in this interim period of time. And you just watch all these people coming in. Everybody had a smile on their face everybody's happy. I mean, if you're going to do something remarkable, it seems like a wedding would be a good place to do it. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, it's not only a captive audience, it's a pretty friendly crowd. Uh, we got back uh, after our afternoon out of doing a little bit of shopping, and the reception is going on full bore. Uh, we went out to the hot tub, and we could still hear the music. I said to Chris, if you're staying in the middle building, you're not going to sleep anytime soon. At one point, we leave the pool area, and we're walking back, and we're looking through the glass windows there, and I kid you not, the bride and the groom are crowd surfing throughout the, the, the group of people who are there, all the guests, and they're going up in the air. I mean, they're up and they're down, and we're sitting there a bit mesmerized, and I said to Chris, man, our reception was really dull in the church basement. Look at these folks. Well, it's at a, at a wedding where Jesus performs his very first public miracle. And again, it seems like a good place to do that. Uh, it's a friendly crowd. I mean, if you had to choose a group of people that you'd like to do something pretty notable in front of a, a wedding crowd wouldn't be a bad place to start. I mean, if everybody gets excited about it, you could say to the DJ, hey, why don't you spin my favorite tune? We'll get a line going here. I'll be out front. We can just, you know what? Jesus will gain almost instant celebrity and it'll spread like a California wildfire and everybody's gonna know who he is and what he can do. But if you've read the story in John's gospel, 
you know that Jesus is not inclined in any such way. In fact, he goes to the wedding not planning to do anything remarkable. Maybe he's just wanting to stay beneath the radar. I mean, think about it. When you go to the wedding, what do you do? You bring your card, you find the box or the table where you're supposed to drop that, and you grab an hors d'oeuvre, maybe a drink, you make small talk with some others there that you might recognize or know, and then you sit at your table and you visit with folks and the bride and the groom make their rounds and you extend your well wishes and then sooner or later after the dancing has begun to wane, you sort of exit. The Bible tells us that Jesus and his family and his newfound friends or disciples are at the wedding and probably that's what he's planning to do. Let's extend our well wishes to the couple for a great life together. Uh, let's visit with a few folks here and then we'll be on our way. But that's not how it goes. In fact, um, life sometimes works that way, doesn't it? All of a sudden, a day that seems like it could be like any other or any day that you might, you know, sort of see on the calendar and anticipate turns out not at all like you would have imagined. And things change as a result. Um, this very first miracle, John tells us, well, it's not uh, in the plan uh, that the Lord has for the day, it would appear um, it is the very first time he does something where someone writes down, and now his glory becomes apparent to people. Well, a miracle can, can have that kind of outcome or that sort of effect, wouldn't you agree? Well, let's read it. It's in John's Gospel, chapter 2, and it's the first 11 verses. Just maybe put yourself in the scene for a moment, if you would. John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. On the third day... A wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw out some and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you saved the best until now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Um, it's notable that Jesus and his family 
and friends are at the wedding. Every once in a while, I mean, it says something about them because every once in a while, religious people sometimes get the notion that they should withdraw from social settings or some parts of society in an effort to sort of live a different sort of life. And there's a time and a place for that, but apparently not here. Jesus is given the invitation to join the wedding celebration and he's happy to be there. He shows up. He's, he's glad to be in attendance. He's not some sort of religious hermit that is attempting to avoid people. Now, it's possible that there's a family connection here between Jesus and the bride and the groom. We don't know for sure, but it's likely. And the reason we would think that is because Mary apparently has some sort of responsibility for catering the event. Um, a wedding in the time of Jesus was a Herculean lift. I, I mean, it's, it's a lot of work today. And if you're involved in a wedding, or if one of your kids has been married, we, two of our, our three kids have gotten married. Uh, I know what that lift is like. If you've had one of your kids get married, you know what it's like. You know the cost that's involved. And uh, it's just a lot of work. But it's even more so in the time of Jesus. A wedding celebration for Jewish people in the first century lasted somewhere between six and seven days. So there would be a ceremony and the reception, instead of its folks, you know, sort of going to a, a banquet hall, if you will, was where this stream of guests would arrive at the home of the bride and the groom over this next week period of time. And in anticipation of all your friends and family members showing up, you had to be prepared to host them. So there was a spread that was required, food and drink, and it would be quite an embarrassment if you came up short. Right? I mean, folks are coming by, they're leaving you something, they're extending their well wishes, and you've got nothing to offer them. Can you imagine a moment like that? I mean, you know what it's like to be surprised when somebody shows up and you don't have anything ready. And you feel a little awkward about that, but think about it when you know they're coming and you've just run out of wine. I mean, this is a major faux pas. And, and Mary, for whatever reason, seems to take it upon herself to make sure that the bride and the groom do not suffer unnecessary embarrassment. And maybe she's thought to herself, hey, uh, somebody run to the vineyard. Somebody go to the market. Or, or find the master and ask, do you have a secret stash? You know, that the good stuff that you, you're holding out, that, that nobody knows about. And when apparently none of those options are available to her, um, it dawns on her. Maybe she even says to the kitchen help, don't worry, I've got an idea. And she finds her son and she says to him, they're out of wine. And the statement apparently comes with this hint of expectation because Jesus um, gives her a response that she couldn't have anticipated. 
In fact, it's the sort of response that no mother here who has a grown son would ever really want, right? Um, He doesn't say, hey, mom, hang on. All of a sudden, she goes from mom to woman. Whoa. I, I can't imagine our son saying to his mom, woman. I, I, I can't imagine him saying that and surviving. Um, but that's what Jesus says. And John makes it clear to record it that way that, that there's a, a shift here. And, and sometimes mothers have expectations for their sons. And Jesus is no exception. And, and if you are a mom, you know what it's like when at some point along the way, your son gets old enough and you say something to him and you realize, oh, he's got a mind of his own now. Uh, every once in a while, I mean, our kids are now in their later 20s and 30s, and when they're visiting, I might say something that would be typical to when they were 16 or 17, and they're gracious, but they say, hey, Dad, I, I got this. That's a nice way of saying, hey, you know, back off. I, I, got, I got this. I mean, Mary comes to Jesus with expectation. Not everybody else knows what he's capable of, but she knows In a moment, he can fix this situation. And so she says, um, they've got nothing. And there are folks on their way here. Woman, why do you involve me here? I mean, it sort of raises this question. Is it possible to presume upon God? I think I have at points in my life. And and Mary here just presumes that Jesus will do something because he can. Have you had that experience with God? You know that he can do something. So you just expect him to do something only to be disappointed when he apparently delays or doesn't. It's one of the great challenges for us as people of faith. And then, you know, maybe it's some ulterior motive that Mary has. I don't know, but it it, it would seem fitting for the moment. Maybe in Mary's mind it's this. You know what? If, If he does this once and for all, all that cloud of suspicion that surrounds our family because everyone knows that Jesus had been born under questionable circumstances. That cloud of suspicion will be removed for him and for us finally and forever. I mean, whose son could do what my son can do? You know, it's kind of, if you will, it's It's self-awareness that helps us to acknowledge what we've done in life. It's self-understanding that helps us understand why we've done certain things in life. And Mary would have been no exception, perhaps. I mean, hidden motives can be a powerful thing in life. And sometimes you understand them and sometimes you don't. For whatever reason, 
whether it's to avoid embarrassment for the young couple, or whether it's to vindicate the name of her family, or whether it's to just show off her son and what he's capable of, like any parent would want to do for their son or their daughter. Mary hopes Jesus will do something. And his response gives the reason for his reticence. My time has not yet come. It is perhaps one of the more insightful statements in all of Holy Scripture. Jesus says, it's not my time, Mom. I I know you have expectations and hopes and aspirations. It's just not my time. But let me tell you, Mom, a time is coming when I will do things this remarkable and even more so. Could you imagine if he had pulled her aside at that moment and said, Mom, let me whisper to you. I'll turn water into wine. I'll raise the dead back to life. I'll deliver the demon-possessed. I'll raise up the leper. I'll multiply a little boy's lunch and feed thousands. Mom, I'm going to do all of that, and I'm ultimately going to go to the cross. And there I'll die for the redemption of humanity. Talk about a miracle. But the problem is, is all of that... Ministry and all of those miracles would set in motion a course of events that could not be reversed. They would take Jesus finally to Jerusalem and then to Golgotha. But there was a lot to do between this moment at this wedding and that moment on the hillside where he would die as the sin sacrifice for all of humanity. I mean, there are disciples to be trained. And so Jesus just wants to hold all of that at bay for a little while, if he might. But the moment requires a response nonetheless. My time, though, Mom, it has not come. You see, there are a lot of things that are true about Jesus that are not true about you and me. And that's pretty apparent, right? I mean, we understand the difference between deity and humanity. But there are some things that were true for Jesus that are also true for us as followers of Jesus. And one of the things that's true for him and is true for us is that timing can be a critically important thing in life. Can it not? I mean, you can do any number of things But you shouldn't sometimes do certain things. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, one of the great challenges in life is showing restraint and to keep yourself from doing some things that you could do but that you shouldn't probably do or do yet. And so Mary doesn't understand that. She will in time because Jesus will come to her and he will say, listen, Mom, um, It's not that I don't want to help. It's not that I'm unconcerned. And you need to hear that voice. When you're waiting on God to do something and you know that he can, but apparently he doesn't. It's not that he cannot or he doesn't sympathize with you. It's that it's not the right time. And so he says to her, Your voice is important to me. But there's another voice that's even more important than yours or any other voice I ever hear in my lifetime. And it's the voice of the Father. I only do what he says in the end. 
It raises this question. In moments of waiting like this, we're wondering about timing in our life and the timing of God. The only thing ultimately that tempers and steadies us in moments like that is knowing that we're hearing the voice of God. I don't know how you hear the voice of God, but I sure hope you've figured it out. Do you hear him in patterns, in process? Is it sort of in the moment? Is it only through the reading of scripture? Is it through the wise counsel of a friend? Whatever means by which you hear the voice of God, you need to hear the voice of the Father. And Jesus says, I hear the voice of the Father. Why is that important? Because it has everything to do with timing. Many, many years ago, when Chris and I were first going into pastoral ministry, we moved back to the town where we were both born. And I began pastoring a church. It was an incredibly difficult season in life. Um, We were having young kids. Some of them had special needs. Uh, The church just wasn't an easy church to pastor. Um, You know, it just just wasn't easy. It's about three and a half years into it. I I looked at Chris one day and I said, listen, I said, I'm just really tired of all this. I didn't didn't think it was going to be like this. I didn't think it was going to be difficult, right? I, I, I thought things would be easier. And so I said, I'm going to update my resume and I'm going to send it off to the guy who had the job then that I have now. And um, I'm going to ask him to circulate my resume and and try to get me a a new job. And so that's what I did. And he called me up one day. He said, hey, you're in central New York State. I want you to go talk to this church in western New York. It's out in Buffalo. And I said, great. And so we made our calls. We made the drive. We went out. We met a group of people. And it became apparent to me pretty quickly that we were not supposed to move there. But I'll be honest, inside there was this internal struggle where I was thinking, you know what, it can't be any worse than where we are, right? I mean, Buffalo's not a bad place. I mean, they don't have a very good football team and it snows a lot, but it it, it can't be an altogether bad place. But I just knew enough at that point that in the timing of God, we weren't supposed to move there. We went back to our hometown, stayed there for three and a half more years. Some of which were better than the first three and a half. Some of which weren't easy. And one day, completely unbeknownst to me, my name had been given to a guy who had the job as the superintendent before I became the superintendent. And he called me up long before cell phones, and he said, hey, I've got a church I want you to go talk to. It's in Foxborough, Massachusetts. I had been to Massachusetts once in my life. It was five hours away, but it could have been an eternity away as far as I was concerned. We went, it became pretty apparent pretty quickly that that's where we were supposed to go. Only retrospect affords you the privilege of looking back and saying, in the providence of God, yes, he provides opportunity, but he allows you to make decisions inside of time. And God said time exists in one of two ways, chronos, chronology, how you and I measure time, and kairos, where God inserts himself in time in a moment and makes his will and plan and direction apparent to you. I can look back now and tell you, that I know it was the mercy of God to take us to live in that place for almost a quarter of a century and how that's made all the difference, not only in our life, but in our children's lives as well. 
but I could just have easily been impetuous, impatient, and moved outside the timing of God. There's a Latin word that sounds rather condescending. It's puer. I mean, it almost sounds insulting, doesn't it, if you were to call somebody that. Hey, you know, you're a bit of a puer. <laughs> but it really isn't intended. It really is not intended to insult somebody. It means uninitiated one. It means you're just naive. You haven't walked and lived long enough in life or with God to realize that it's about living with God. And it's about following his time and timetable. And he leads and he guides. And you do well to follow. Life goes a lot better as a result. Wouldn't you agree? And so that's why Jesus says to Mary, listen, my time's coming. It just isn't quite here yet. I don't know what, I don't know what it is that you're waiting on or what sort of restraint you're having to show. Maybe it's the restraint of having to bail your kids out one more time from some irresponsible thing they've done. Maybe it's the restraint of moving on from this job to one you think you'll like better or moving from here to somewhere more promising or walking away from that marriage. Restraint is not an easy thing to show, but that's what Jesus does in this moment. Life has a cadence to it when you're a person of faith, and God's involved in that rhythm. Now, here's the second thing you got to take from this text, and this isn't about, hey, it was true for Jesus. It was, and it's not true for us. It is, and that is that when the timing of God and the plan of God becomes apparent to us, it often comes with the requirement of obedience. Isn't that true? And the real challenge is when obedience asks more of you than you were hoping to have to give. Right? When, when God makes his leading clear and it means this. Oh. <laughs> okay, God. I, I wasn't anticipating that. But if you're leading, then I'll follow. It's in these words. Um, do whatever he tells you. Whatever it is he says, you do it. And so the servants are on standby. And Jesus looks over and he sees about six large clay pots that hold somewhere between 20 and 30 gallons each. And he says to them, uh, hey, hey, fellas, take those jugs to the well and fill them to the brim with water. And admittedly, maybe it's my mind that runs away with me in a moment like this, but if I were one of the servants, I might have been tempted to say, um, that's cool. We can do that, Jesus. Um, you know it's not water they're looking for. It's wine that they want, right? <laughs> they're thirsty, but they're thirsty for the good stuff. That's what they're looking for. But they hear Mary's words, do whatever he says. Has that happened to you? Does that happen to you at one point or another? Just do whatever he says. Right? Last night, Chris and I were just talking about and praying for a mutual friend who had to move to a place where she did not want to go. 
And it's taken her years to feel at home and at peace with the assignment of God. She knows it's clearly in his direction. But she didn't want to go there. Ever had that sort of experience? Maybe you're where you are right now and you'd rather be somewhere else. But go ahead and do it. And so they fill it, they bring it back, and maybe they're just sort of standing around. And Jesus looks at one of them and he says, "Uh, you, take that cup and go dip from that jar there, fill it with water, and take it to the master of the banquet. Again, maybe it's my mind, but I might have been tempted to have said, how about you take it to him, Jesus? Um... I don't think he's looking for water. But he doesn't. He brings the cup to the master of the banquet. And somewhere between that moment where that servant dips that water and that master puts that cup to his lips, Jesus turns that water into the finest wine that anyone has ever tasted. And the master is amazed. Wow, this is good wine. It's about time to bring out the cheap stuff. Folks are a bit tipsy here. We've been, you know, imbibing for days now. This is where you, you know, you bring out the lesser stock. But you've saved the very best until now. And John tells us, And he did not know how this had happened, but the servants, they knew. And Jesus' glory begins to be apparent to folks. You see, life works that way more often than it does with a big show, doesn't it? Somebody watches you as a person who's sensitive to the timing and leading of God, a person who's obedient to the voice of the Father, and then they just see something remarkable. And you really don't have any other explanation but, but God. It's the only explanation you have, and his glory starts to be apparent to folks. And... His, really his fame becomes apparent in the world. (laughs) You know, the gospel, the gospel ultimately is one grand invitation beckoning you and me to trust Jesus. That's what it is. This was apparent in a very real way in 1854 in New York City. Elisha Otis is the fellow who is really attributed with inventing the Otis elevator, which he didn't do, by the way. Elevators were in play before 1854. They were just really crude in nature. An elevator was nothing more than often a a wood platform, a, a series of pulleys, and some strong folks who would grab a rope and do their very best to lift anyone who would be brave enough to stand on that platform up to some higher level. And then they would sort of tie the rope off 
And then when somebody would call down the chute and say, hey, we'd like to be lowered, they would climb back aboard and they would do their best to untie the rope and not let it, you know, get away and then sort of lower folks down. But because the system was what it was, every once in a while, human error or malfunction would come into play and, and folks would be dropped instead of, you know, carefully lowered. And so in 1854, elevators were uh, not really in vogue and mostly because folks were just afraid to get on them. And Elisha Otis realized that elevators are never going to go anywhere. And he had in mind to not only invent something that would assist with the elevator, but also the escalator and then moving sidewalks. I mean, he was an inventor. And at that time, there was no building in New York City that was higher than six stories because that was about the height at which anybody would ever dare to raise and lower people from. Now, I was in New York City last week. I don't think there are any buildings that have six stories or less left in New York City. Everything's a high rise. In large part, you can attribute that to Elisha Otis. What he actually invented was the modern braking system that would put an elevator inside of a chute, if you will, raise it up, stop it, and then lower it safely so that the door could open or folks could just step off of the platform, if you will. It was 1854. It was the Grand Crystal Palace Exposition. Think the World's Fair in New York City. And Elijah Otis had decided that he was going to go there and put his modern braking system on display. And he was going to give people a ride to safety up and down. There was only one problem. He got there and he couldn't find any volunteers who were willing to climb aboard. And so when he realized that it would necessitate a change of plans, he called his assistant to come by, and this is the point at which you were still lowered by the old system and raised up that way, but he wanted to get people to the top and show them that we were going to release the safety catch, if you will, and my braking system will stop you safely at the bottom and keep you from plummeting to injury or death. And folks were sitting there listening to his spiel, uh, thinking to themselves, um, maybe but not for me. And when finally he convinced no one else, he climbed aboard his own elevator, had his assistant raising the six stories, and to prove his point, he didn't say, just let me go. He looked at his assistant and he said, cut the safety wire. And that's exactly what his assistant did. And three different times he did that and he was lowered and he stopped that elevator with his modern braking system and he stepped off safely. But when folks heard him say, cut the safety wire, they gasped in disbelief. When he stepped off safely, they cheered. Right there that day, he sold his first of what would become now 70,000 Otis elevators with still this modern braking system in New York City alone. He sold three of them on the spot for $300 a piece, and that's when high-rises began to go higher and higher in New York City. 
Listen, I tell you that story for this reason. There's a vast difference between knowing about something and someone and trusting in something and someone. And let me say it again. The gospel beckons you to the latter. To trust Jesus. And in a world that's going sideways, the best advice any of us have, has, is from the gospel. He is to be trusted. Why? Because his time has now come. We know who Jesus is. We know he's faithful. We know he stays with us. Amen? And because we believe that, the last thing we need to be prepared to do is receive the remarkable when he does it. The master didn't know. How did this happen? How did this come about? But the servants, they knew. When you go out those doors today and you go wherever it is that God's going to take you, And once again, you get to tell the remarkable things that have happened in your life. And people just wonder. (laughs) You're just a servant of Jesus. You know how it's happened. And you know he's to be trusted. You tell them to trust him too. Would you stand with me? Jesus, we're alive at a time when when we're wondering how are certain things going to resolve and how will all be made well the gospel tells us it will be made well one day when this same Jesus who you saw leave and go up into the sky, will one day himself appear again and bring you to his side. And so shall you forevermore be with the Lord. Wow. (laughs) In anticipation of that moment, what a day of rejoicing it will be. All will walk. All will speak. All will declare the glory of God. And I'm convinced we will dance like we have never danced before. So between this moment and that one, Jesus, would you be merciful and allow us to move in your timing, to respond with obedience, and to receive the remarkable provision that you have available to us as your sons and your daughters. Now bless your people, I pray, with a wonderful week inside the things and ways of the Spirit. To God be the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a good week.